From MPB Think Radio, it's Legal Terms, a show all about you and your rights. I'm Sherita Brent, joined by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest this morning is Stacy Lantain, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we're discussing intellectual property rights, the rights of writers, musicians, photographers, poets. If you have a bright idea, what can you do to keep it from being stolen? Or can ideas be protected at all? Can you stop someone from stealing your business name? And we'll talk about the difference between a patent, copyright, and trademark. Listeners, if you've had an idea for a business or a movie, how do you protect that legally? If you are a writer or musician, what do you do to protect your work? Call us at 877-MPB-RING, 877-672-7464, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back right after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sherita Brent, joined by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest this morning is Stacy Lantain, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we're going to be talking about intellectual property rights, the rights of writers, musicians, photographers, poets. You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING if you have any questions or comments. We're going to talk about the difference between a patent, copyright, and trademark as well. 877-672-7464 is the number if you're curious about how to protect your work or if you have an idea and you're wondering how to go about protecting that, we'll talk about if ideas can be protected at all. You can also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org if you have any questions or comments throughout the show. Good morning, professors. How are you today? Good morning, Sherita. Good morning. All right. So um, this is going to be a good topic. It always is uh, because we have a lot of creative people in Mississippi who want to know their rights when it comes to protecting their work. So uh, first of all, Professor Lantain, could you just tell us how long you've been involved in this area of law? Um, Basically, ever since I stopped, left law school, which I guess is, let me see how old I am now, probably like (laughs) 11 or 12 years. Okay. Um, Once I, I didn't know that this was what I wanted to do when I was in law school. And uh, once I left, I had a couple of cases that were copyright related. I was working in New Orleans and working with artists in New Orleans, and I just fell in love. And so I've been doing it ever since then. Oh, well, I imagine you were very, very busy in New Orleans because there are so many musicians and creative people there. I imagine that you never, ever ran out of work there. (laughs) Well, it was really amazing. I actually was working for a judge, um, and so it it was whatever came across. But yeah, we had a lot of artists and we also had um cocktails trademarks for cocktails is a very big thing intellectual property wise in new orleans so lots of research in the french quarter all right so when we talk about intellectual property law what what goes under that umbrella uh who's involved are we talking about inventors musicians uh poets who's involved uh in intellectual property law all of those people so intellectual property law Um, We generally think of it as patents, copyrights, and trademarks, Um, and there's also a trade secret component. And so this runs the gamut from really anyone who's in a business is using a trademark in some way um, or trying to protect some kind of trade secret. Inventors are who we would think of with patents, and those are 
both scientists and, and also people who don't necessarily have a science background, um, but are just inventing mechanical types of things. Um, and then copyrights cover all of the creative fields that you can think of. So songs and poems and books and choreography and stand-up comedy and architecture, all of that stuff falls under the aegis of copyright, including software, computer software. That's interesting. I've had a conversation with uh, an intellectual property expert before about stand-up comedy and how to protect jokes and things like that because I hear comedians stealing jokes from other comedians all the time, but sometimes it's the same topic if we're both watching the news and we see something about uh, the presidential candidates and we both tell a joke who's to say who was the originator of that joke. So when it comes to something like stand-up comedy, does it boil down to it being recorded and, and that's how you protect it? Um, it does and it doesn't. It's true that it does have to be recorded in some way in order to be protected. That's one of copyright's requirements. So it either has to be recorded, um, you know, someone holding up an iPhone and recording the performance or if someone's just writing it down, taking a transcript, you know, tweeting it, um, whatever it might be, as long as it's it's written down, then it gets protected. But even if you've done that, if another comedian watches the news and comes up with the same joke as you completely independently, there's nothing under copyright that you can do to stop that. That's mm -hmm. a complete defense. Um, independent invention is what it's called. And this is why you will, you will frequently hear songs that sound alike on the radio and you think to yourself, wait a second, how can they do that? That song sounds just like that other song. It's because as long as they came up with it independently, um, they should be okay. And the problem with songs is that there's only so many notes and so many chords that actually sound pleasing to the human ear. And so there ends up being a lot more overlap independently than, than you might think in the song realm. 877 MPB ring is the number. If you have any questions this morning, we have intellectual property rights expert on Stacey Lantain, professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And we're talking about your rights as a writer or musician. And we're talking about the difference between copyright, trademark, patents. If you have any questions or comments about these things, any kind of work that you have and you want to make sure it's protected, or if you've had a bad experience where something you created was stolen, you want to know your rights, call us at 877 MPB ring. That's 877 Six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Um, Roger's on the line with an off-topic question, but we'll see what we can do. Roger, good morning. What do you have for us? Roger, you there? Yes, yes, I am. Uh, this doesn't pertain to the conversation you all had, but I was accused of DUI, and but when I went to court, it was dismissed, and the refusal was dismissed. But the city of Jackson, their records department, still suspended my license for a year. And I'm trying to see what I can do to have that overturned. Okay, uh, Professor Gerson, you want to try to tackle this one? or? Well, I do. I think, you know, Roger, I'm sorry you're going through that. But I think you just need to get a, a lawyer down in the Jackson area to help you. Somebody should be able to help you pretty easily. There are a lot of good lawyers down there who do DUI defense. And, you know, since it's been dismissed, you know, I don't have all the facts, obviously, and can give you specific advice, but somebody down there could do it, and probably it sounds like a reasonably easy fix. Okay, thank you. Okay, Roger, thank you for your call. Um, and Professor Lantain, you were talking about uh, songs sounding alike, and uh, it seems like Marvin Gaye's estate has really been going after people uh, whose music sounds like <laughs> Marvin Gaye's. We heard it with uh, Blurred Lines and Robin Thicke, and I'm not—I don't quite remember the outcome of that one. But recently, uh, they've gone out of uh, this 
artist going after this artist, Ed Sheeran, uh, for his song uh, sounding like Let's Get It On. And now that I listen to it, I'm like, oh, it does kind of have the, the same tune now that I listen to it. Um, but what do you have to say about that? Because, you know, there are a lot of melodies that are similar, uh, you know, chords that are going to be similar in songs. How do you form a case and say this person is deliberately copying my original song? It's it's interesting that you bring that up, um, and it's interesting that you mentioned the Blurred Lines case, because uh, Marvin Gaye's estate actually won that case, and it's being appealed right now by Pharrell and, and Robin Thicke, and what's really interesting is just in the past couple of weeks, um, about 200 musicians banded together um, and, appear- and joined on Robin Thicke and Pharrell's behalf against Marvin Gaye. And basically their argument was this ruling that Blurred Lines infringes Marvin Gaye's song is going to strangle music going forward because the the argument of these 200 musicians and they are big name musicians. I mean, I think I know that like Hans Zimmer, the Academy Award winning composer of movies was one of the people that I read about was was on this. Their argument is it's true. Music all kind of sounds alike at the heart of things. If you go back to medieval times, you will find like the, the, you can see the chords of Stairway to Heaven in like music from the 15th century. Like it's amazing how little things have actually changed on YouTube. You can watch this progression because that was another big case that just happened was a Stairway to Heaven um, copyright infringement case. And um, it's, it's, the, the the verdict in favor of the Marvin Gaye estate, there's a lot of um, uncertainty that's uh, that's introduced into the music world because it is true. A lot of songs sound alike and we don't call all of that copyright infringement. It has to be actual copying of substantially similar original elements of a song. And that's really where it starts to fail. This is the argument of Pharrell and Robin Thicke is that what Marvin Gaye was doing was just picking up on things that have been existing in music all along. And they're not necessarily copying Marvin Gaye's song. They're just copying sort of the Marvin Gaye mood. And that's not copyrightable. You know, Hmm. R&B, nobody owns R&B. Nobody owns opera. Those are just styles of music. And Stacey, in a case like that, I mean, do they look at, you know, I mean, was Marvin Gaye's song necessarily completely original? I'm sure there are elements that he must have taken from other R&B singers and performers. So how far back do you have to go to you know get to that original content? They definitely look at that and and frequently you have to go pretty far back. Um I don't actually remember if they did that analysis in the Marvin Gaye case specifically, but like I said with Stairway to Heaven, their experts were pulling out stuff from Renaissance music and saying, "Look, here's the the same guitar chord that you say they stole here. It's showing up, you know, in in the Renaissance." And then they would follow it through. Um and then there were a lot of debates about, well, why, then what makes Stairway to Heaven so great, right? Like if this is being shown all over the place and there's a lot of music is very complicated because it is very similar and it's been very similar for centuries and trying to pull out what's actually original about a particular song is complicated. Generally, what ends up happening is it becomes a question of how identical are the two songs? Is it just like a few chords, a chord progression? Most courts would say, 
that's just something that happens, right? Like there's only so many chord progressions. Everybody has that, but is it chord progression plus rhythm plus a similarity in subject matter plus you're in the same exact key plus mm. you sing 15 out of 16 notes exactly the same and then that starts to look more like well you're taking something that's original to the song but it tends to be a combination of many elements it's not just going to be oh the melody for a few notes sounds exactly the same now how does weird al for example <laughs> who clearly is taking you know full full sections of songs and we love his music and his comedy but how, how do we, how does he not infringe copyright? He, well, Weird Al actually goes out and, and gets permission and licenses his songs because um, most artists consider it, I don't know, cool to, to be parodied by Weird Al. But the truth is, as I just said, Weird Al is parodying. He's like making fun of the songs, really. Um, and so arguably he would be protected by a doctrine called fair use, which allows you to use other people's copyrighted things for things like parody, like think of Saturday Night Live, stuff like that. Um, for things like commentary and criticism, this is how movie critics can criticize movies because they're allowed to talk about people's copyrighted movies for the purposes of criticism, for scholarship, those sorts of things are protected by fair use. Um, Weird Al doesn't want to get in a fight with anybody and have to prove that. And he's a big enough name that he can just go and he can license the song. So that's actually what goes on with Weird Al. Um, but most of us who pay attention think he probably has a really good argument that he doesn't have to license at all. I think he's just trying to keep up his relationship with these artists. All right. We have a couple calls to get to. Laura is in Plantersville with a question. Good morning, Laura. What do you have for us? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, ma'am. My husband has been writing his own songs at the church for like 10 years, his own music and also his own poems. And we have a Facebook page for the church, but I'm afraid to put him on there because I don't have no protection. So I'm so happy you have this program today. Maybe you can help me with some legal advice. All right, Laura, thank you so much. Thank you. So um, you actually automatically have copyright protection as soon as you create your creative work. So as soon as, I think you said it was your husband, as soon as he writes the songs, writes the poems, he has a copyright in that. His right is there. Um, now, if you want to sue people and go to court, you have to register that copyright. It's actually fairly simple and straightforward. Um, it's online. There's a site, uh, www.copyright.gov. Um, and you go there and there's a form and you fill it out and then you have a cop and you already have your copyright, but then you have a registered copyright and you really need that if you want to go to court. But if you don't want to go to court, you still have rights. So I don't want you to think that you don't have any right because you haven't done anything. The act of creating gives you that right. Um, but you are correct to be hesitant to put things online just because once you do that, it's so easy to copy things online and, and to find your stuff and it might be illegally copied, right? In fact, it's probably going to be if it's being copied and put somewhere without your knowledge. But practically speaking, this really isn't a matter of law, just practically speaking, it's much easier to lose control of your stuff online. Um, and so that's really just a personal practical decision that you have to make. Do you want to take that risk? Is it is it worth it to you? But doing that doesn't posting it online doesn't destroy any of your rights. You have those rights. They're there. They're intact. It's just a practical question of how easy it is on the internet, which is very different from any other way we've ever interacted as a civilization, how easy it is to pull that back. All right, Laura, thank you so much for your call. Before we go to the break, we're going to Kevin, who's on the road with a question. Good morning, Kevin. Well, hello. 
Hello. I have a question about my invention. Okay. I have an invention that I that I produce that I want to produce and make, and I need to find out what do I have to do if I want to sell it. Do I have to go to a patent attorney, or do I have to get a copyright on it? Because I want to start making and selling it. All right, Kevin, that's a good question. Any thoughts, Professor uh, Lantain? So if it's an invention, the relevant thing that, that would protect it would be either a patent or a trade secret. Um, and if if you want a patent, then, yeah, you would have to go to an attorney. It's kind of difficult to get a patent without an attorney because it's a very complicated governmental process that takes a while. You have to disclose a bunch of stuff. Um, you can start selling your invention, but you you would probably want to protect it with a patent. The other thing, though, the other doctrine that I said is trade secret. That doesn't require you to do anything. You just have to keep the invention a secret. So you could sell your invention. If it's really easy for people to figure out how to make your invention, trade secret isn't a good way to go. But for instance, like Coca-Cola, they don't have a patent protecting their recipe or formula. They have just kept it secret. And as long as they've kept it secret, they can keep selling it. Um, so those are your your two ways that you have to go there. Um, patent is a lot stronger protection. That's why it's more difficult to get. If you have a patent, if you get that patent, you can stop anyone from selling anything, even if they came up with it on their own, um, that infringes upon your patent. But you need to get a patent attorney to, to help with that, unfortunately. Um, or fortunately, because patent attorneys do really excellent work. <laughs> but that would be a thing that you you would want to worry about. There's nothing stopping you from selling what you want to sell. You can totally go for it. But if you're worried about other people copying you and taking this invention from you, um, then, yeah, talking to a patent attorney would probably be a good way to go. How long does it usually take? It depends on the, uh, the attorney and the, and the product. It depends more on, on the... Um, the government attorney. So once you, you will, you will apply for a patent at the U S patent and trademark office, and then you'll get a patent examiner there who will, um, sort of have a, a, an exchange with your attorney about whether or not your invention can be patented. It usually takes about a year and a half from the date of application until you get the patent. That doesn't necessarily mean that you can't do anything for a year and a half. Um, you can do provisional things and there's, there's, doctrines that we have to protect you while that patent's being applied for. Okay, well, listen, thank you very much for your time. Okay, Kevin, thank you so much for your call. All right, we need to take our first break. When we get back, we'll continue the conversation about intellectual property, your rights as a writer, musician, photographer, poet, business owner. You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. All our lines are currently open. If you have any questions about your intellectual property rights, uh, if you run a business, what are some things you can do to protect uh, your business names and the things that you create? 877-672-7464 is the number to call, or you can send an email to legalterms at online. We'll be back in just a moment.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of the Mississippi School of Law. And our guest this morning is Stacy Lantain, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And today we're talking about intellectual property law, your rights as a writer, musician, photographer, poet, business owner. You can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING if you have any questions about what a patent is, copyright, trademark. Call us at 877-672-7464. We have about three lines open right now. You can also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Uh, so, Professor Lantain, you had mentioned fair use. Um, could you talk about the public domain and what that is? Like, do things like patents or copyrights, do they expire and eventually become open to everybody? Yes. So, patents and copyrights expire. Um, trademarks and trade secrets do not. So as long as you use your trademark and as long as you keep your trade secret a secret, you can keep that stuff forever. Um, copyrights expire, I think it's now 75 years after the death of the author. Mm-hmm. And patents expire, I think it's now 17 years from the date of the application. I think I have that right. We're constantly changing those terms. Um, so patents are very strong protection, so that's why they last the shortest amount of time because they are enormously broad. And as I said to the previous caller, you can stop anyone from doing anything that infringes your patent, even if they came up with it on their own. And so um, we limit how long you can keep those patents for. Once the patent expires, it falls into what you would say is the public domain. And that's when, so this happens with pharmaceutical drugs. You know, you have so many years to exploit your market of your of your drug that you came up with. And then after that, competition enters and, and all of the people get to make the drug. Mm. Um, the same thing with copyright. Um, it falls into the public domain, as I said, about 75 years after the death of the author. We actually just expanded that. I say just, it's probably like 20 years ago now at this point because time flies. Um, but for that reason, the public domain was frozen for a while in this country. Nothing was entering the public domain. I think we're going to start up again next year. I think next year things start entering the public domain again. And once something's in the public domain, it's kind of a free-for-all. You can do as you wish with things in the public domain. That's different than fair use. Fair use actually protects you if you're using things that are not in the public domain. If something's in the public domain, you don't need fair use. It's out there. Um, this is This is why you can... You know, Google Books was able to put books from the 19th century online with no problem because it was in the public domain. They didn't have to have a fight about that. It's stuff that's copyrighted. If Google Books wants to put that stuff online, now they have to come up with a fair use reason that protects them. And Google Books actually did come up with a fair use reason. They said it was educational, that they were, this was, you know, a service that they were performing that that didn't, um, that would inspire people to buy more books that didn't necessarily prevent people from, from wanting to go out and buy the books. And so it was protected as fair use. All right. We have a call to get to. Kevin is in Mississippi with a question. Good morning. Kevin, what do you have for us? Good morning. I appreciate you taking my call. Um, I just wanted to kind of check on the validity of a so-called poor man's patent. I heard about it years back, and basically it boils down to if I have an idea or Something that, you know, I can't really put to the patent process because it's time-consuming and uh, 
uh, it might be an invention or something along those lines, that I can take all the information that I've accumulated and I can put it in an envelope and certify and mail it to myself and then leave it sealed until, you know, it becomes an issue, if it ever does become an issue about the ownership of it. That's my question. Okay. I've heard of this idea as well, Kevin. Uh, so, Professor, is that a legitimate thing or not? I've heard of it more in the in the copyright context um, that people would mail copies of their novels to themselves and and think that they're thereby they were establishing their rights. Um, and I think that was more important before the computer age, when actually it's very it's very easy to determine when you wrote your novel because all of our all of our files are date stamped now. Um, so you don't really need to you, you never really needed to do that to have a copyright and i don't really know what the purpose of it would be if you're using things on computer because the only thing i could think of you would want to do copyright wise is sort of freeze like this is when i came up with it i was the first person to come up with it i didn't copy it off of you because i wrote it at this particular period of time um as far as yeah. with a patent that's not really going to do anything for you because with patents, in order to get protection, you actually need to disclose it. You need to, the government requires you, if you want that broad protection, you have to go tell the government that this is what I invented. It might work for trade secret purposes, but once someone else figures out your trade secret, you don't have any rights unless they steal it from you. If they steal it from you, yeah, definitely. You know, if they break into your desk and take that sealed envelope out, of course you have rights of, among them breaking and entering. Um, but for a patent, you, you have to, the government makes you go through the whole process. I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't really think that you're protected at all in the patent realm by, by doing that. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Kevin, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate it. 877-MPB-RING is the number. If you want to join the conversation, we are talking about your intellectual property rights. If you are a writer, musician, photographer, poet, uh, some kind of entrepreneur, and you're wondering how to protect uh, the things that you create, call us at 877-MPB-RING. If you have any comments or questions about patents, copyright, trademarks, things like that, 877-672-7464 is the number, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. Um, so, Professor, I'm curious about speeches. I don't know. This may fall under the same umbrella as poems, but there was some controversy not long ago about Melania Trump allegedly stealing Michelle Obama's speech. And I was just curious about people who give speeches all the time, uh, presidential candidates, uh, any kind of motivational speakers. Do they have any protection of these speeches so folks won't just go, uh, you know, record their stuff and then recite it as their own in another space? They do. Um, so what's interesting is there's kind of two wrinkles of this. One is just the, the PR nightmare, right? Of copying other people's speeches above mm -hmm. and beyond whether or not you have a legal right to do that. You know, one would hope that you reconsider that given how easy it is for people to figure out what it is that you're doing. Um, but legally the thing about copyright is the, the term that's used in the statute for it is that it has to be fixed in a tangible medium. So that means that if you and I were just sitting around having a conversation, it would be hard for me to exercise a copyright in what it is that I'm saying to you right now. But because it's being recorded on the radio, it's being fixed in a tangible medium, and I now have a copyright. So all of these people giving speeches, they get copyrights because the speech is being written down or it's being recorded in some way. That's where they're getting the copyright protection. Just giving the speech without anybody fixing it, as we would say, recording it, um, doesn't necessarily give you copyright protection. 
And partly that's because it's really hard for us to verify that you're telling the truth if it hasn't been fixed in some way. You know, you can show up and say, Melania Trump stole Michelle Obama's speech. The reason that was compelling to us was because we could go back and we could look at Michelle Obama's speech. If Mm -hmm. it hadn't been fixed somehow, then you can't really make that case. So that's why we require that for copyright. Um, So there are definitely rights in that. Again, this would revolve around, and I know that this was, you saw this come into the debate a little bit with the Melania Trump thing. Was there something original about the speech? Because we only copyright original things. And was what was copied um, substantially similar to what was original? And so yes. I think it <laughs> I depends saw some video, on... Uh, I saw some video comparisons and the similarities were striking. And I totally agree. Um, but what's interesting is that you you might have people listening who didn't agree and that's what makes copyright law so challenging because mm. it frequently comes down to a matter of opinion like well you know what yes it was striking but they were just talking about you know the american dream of picking yourself up by your bootstraps and achieving things and no one can own that particular and like i'm i'm with you where i thought the particular um, way in which that was stated was very singular to michelle obama and to me looked clearly copied by melania trump But you can see how, and you saw this in the debate over it, that people disagreed and they really were disagreeing about the thing that we fight about with copyright law. Was this substantially similar enough that you would call that an infringement of somebody's copyright? Or was it just, hey, they were talking about the same idea and they use similar language because there's only so many words in the English language. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. We need to take a quick break. When we get back, we have lots of calls to get to. Robert, Ron, David, Tom, not necessarily in that order, but we'll get to you right after this break. 877-MPB-RING is the number if you want to join the conversation. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. And today we're talking about your intellectual property rights if you are a writer, musician, business owner, photographer, poet, and we are joined by Professors Richard Gershon and Stacy Lantain of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Lots of calls to get to. We're going first to Robert in Meridian. Good morning, Robert. What do you have for us? Good morning, folks. Good to talk to you. Same here. Um, here's, a, here's the deal with the music and, and the recent cases. Uh, <clears throat> in a lot of subject areas, a blue ribbon panel is pulled together to do the study to find out just what's what, all right? 
if Yo-Yo Ma and Quincy Jones and Itzhak Perlman and Winton Marcellus and Stevie Wonder sat down to look at the chord progressions and other technical aspects of the, of the music, I'd find that the conclusions that they came to would make a whole lot more sense than somebody telling me, well, you know, these are basic patterns that maybe go back in time down through history. Mm. If somebody is going to evaluate um, the, whether the uh, plagiarism took place in some speech that somebody made, a police investigation alone or the, the Internet records, the patterns, the, the person's other writings, how, you know, how do they normally express themselves? Is this something that would stand out in a way that would say clearly this is their own creation as opposed to they took it from somebody else? These are just some of the thoughts of a non-scholar. Anyway, have a good day. Okay, thanks, uh, Robert. Uh, any follow-up to that, Professor Lantay? Oh, yeah, and, and what he's saying is definitely stuff that comes up in, in court cases. Um, for So we were talking about the Melania Trump-Michelle Obama thing. Michelle Obama has not sued Melania Trump, and I would be surprised if she ever does. And so she's not going to spend a bunch of resources to figure that out. But if you get involved in a copyright litigation suit, those are the kinds of things that they look at. Your internet history, your access to the thing that people say that you're taking, whether or not it is similar to stuff that you've said before. Um, those are all things that they do look at. So he's absolutely right. And as far as the blue ribbon panel, um, what they will do if you're again involved in this is they call in experts. Um, and that's the word that they use. They are experts that come in and they tell you about the chord progressions, about that stuff. They tend I think sometimes they're musicians, but a lot of times they tend to be musicologists, like academics that are experts in musical history or something like that, because um, it could be very true. You know, Stevie Wonder writes awesome music, but he might not have that knowledge of that Renaissance song from the 15th century that your music historian might have. And so um, you would bring experts in, though, to help you. It wouldn't just be a decision made without that if you get to that point in the litigation. All right. Ron is in Jackson with a question. Good morning, Ron. What do you have for us? Yes, good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm a photographer, and in order to copyright my work, is there paperwork or is the inherent act of creation copyright enough? Okay, good question, Ron, and I'm curious to hear the answer to this one, too, especially with social media uh, being the way it is, and you can just copy a picture and, and use it as your own. So that's a good question. Any thoughts, Professor Lantain? Yes, inherent the inherent act of creation is enough to give you a copyright. You everybody sitting taking selfies right now at this moment, you have a copyright in those selfies that you are taking. Um the thing is though that so you have rights. We would as a country policy-wise prefer that you register your copyrights because it makes things cleaner. There's a record. We know actually what's going on, who created it, when they created it. So if you want to sue someone, if you want to actually bring someone to court, you first have to go and register your copyright. But you you don't lose your copyright ever. If it takes you a few years to go and register your copyright, fine. It takes you a few years. Um, you might get less money at court if you win. Like there are certain penalties that we might introduce there, but you will, you will, you have your copyright as soon as it's created. And so, Stacey, are there, yeah, I'm go sorry. ahead, Professor Gershon. I was going to say, it seems like I've seen photography websites where they, they actually put protections on there. So you can't just, you know, cut and paste the, the pictures. I mean, one thing that photographers could do is really 
make sure they have those protections because, you know, I know when my kids have their school pictures, you know, you get them electronically to look at, but you can't just download them. Yeah. Yes. And so that's, I mean, those are not legally required, of course, but yeah, if you want to make sure that you have extra protection, like a watermark or, or something like that does, does help with that, but you don't need that to have your protection. All right, Ron, thank you for your call. We go next to David and Jackson with a question. Good morning, David. What do you have for us? Yeah, I have a question about a provisional patents. I'm considering a provisional patent to give me that patent pending plea to be able to utilize it on print and that type thing. At the end of the grace period, am I required to take it to a regular patent? Do they require that as part of the ability to use a provisional patent? Yeah, the pat- the provisional patent will lapse after a certain period of time. I think it's just a year. I think it's just 12 months, and you have to, um, in that time, apply to try to to try to get it to fruition. Um, basically, what you're doing with the provisional patent is you're just kind of saying, okay, it takes a lot of time to put together a patent application. I want to protect myself. I want to put my flag down and say I occupy this place, and in a year, I'll get back to you with my full patent application. But if you fail to do that... Um, the provisional will eventually lapse. Okay, so the, it's not a requirement. I guess what I'm trying to say is, obviously, if you have the ability within a 12-month period to generate revenue, um, it all of it, you know, helps in regards to patent costs. And um, but if you have put together something that you know isn't generating any revenue, then uh, you may not want to move forward. I wanted to make sure that you know that uh, you know I wasn't in a position where I was going to have to you know move forward with that it just means that i would lose um my protection i guess that would be exactly that's right yes very good all right david thank you for your call we go next to tom in savannah tennessee good morning tom good morning thank you for having me on Mm -hmm. um i'm concerned about a book that i wrote and uh published in 2003 registered with the library of congress uh, for my copyright and uh it was a print-on-demand book which means, of course, that uh, when a person orders it, uh, then a copy is printed and, and delivered to them. So it's basically a, a sold and done deal. Uh, the print-on-demand publisher, Trafford, took the book and uh, provided it to Amazon. And Amazon ordered 50 copies because it seemed to be selling pretty well back then. And uh, when I contacted Amazon, because they put the book on an electronic form also to be uh, electronically downloaded, they told me that uh, I had to have... Trafford verified that I was the author. So I called Trafford, and they said, well, how do we know you wrote the book? And I said, well, what do you mean? What's going on there? So what they've essentially said is that I'm an orphan author, uh, and that they're not going to pay me any royalties on this book. And they haven't. They've never paid me a dime on it, even though the book is still literally being uh, sold worldwide right now. Hmm. So, um... My first instinct is that this seems like it should be a matter of contract law between you and the print-on-demand publisher. Um, that you and you might be sitting there thinking, I don't remember signing a formal contract, but there should have been terms of use or um, you know service. Like like when you go on Facebook and Amazon, they all say like, here are your conditions for using this page. That something like that should dictate what's happening here. Um, it's strange that they seem to be asserting that you cannot prove that you are the author because presumably you did, you know, click somewhere at some point and enter some kind of name somewhere that would verify 
your identity. Someone had to upload the book to them um, so that they could do this stuff. And so I feel like um, there there should be a wrinkle there. So um, there's there's probably contract law coming into play. And then if you are indeed, you know, you're the author of the book, the copyright belongs to you. Um, and in fact, books that are orf orphaned, that does not mean that everybody gets to run around doing whatever they want because they can't find the author. In fact, it means nobody can do anything because they can't find the author. So an assertion that um, they don't know who the author is, so they just do whatever they want is not actually correct legally. Um, you need to find the author of something under copyright in order to do things. It's actually one of the major challenges right now because we do have a lot of legitimate orphan work sitting out there. Um, so that's sort of what I can tell you just as the, as the principles of copyright law. Um, and, and I guess my advice would be that you should, you should get a lawyer to look at your contract or look back and see what it was that, that happened between you and the print on demand publisher, because I do feel that that will, um, dictate a lot of the shape of what the conversation is. All right, Tom, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate it. Uh, we need to take a quick break. Charles, when we get back, you will be up next, and we have a few lines open if you want to join the conversation as we discuss intellectual property rights. If you are a writer, musician, photographer, poet, business owner, and you have questions about your rights when it comes to patents, copyright, trademark, call us at 877-MPB-RING. We do have some lines open, 877-672-7464, or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We'll be back in just a moment. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Sharita Brent. Our guest today is Stacy Lantane, professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law, and Professor Richard Gershon is on with us as well. And we've been talking about intellectual property rights. We have lots of calls I get to. We're going first to Charles, who's in Jackson, with a question. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. My question is related to um, the, the, the professor's uh, statement about something being copyrighted the moment you produce it something that, that, that you've written, for example. And I don't quite understand how that would work if you don't, if you don't do this, uh, this project, this writing or whatever, on your computer. What if you write it by hand or type it on a regular typewriter, not a computer? How would you prove uh, that it was yours and it was done at a certain time if somebody steals it and 
manages to copyright it legally and officially. I think that's why um, people used to send it to themselves to try to help with that. That doesn't actually increase your rights. Your Your rights exist as soon as you write it out by hand. They exist as soon as you type it on the typewriter. It's not necess- it's, it's not that it's because it's on a computer that you get your right. You get your right always as soon as you create the thing, no matter what medium you're fixing it into, as long as you're fixing it in a tangible medium. Um, I think that the questions that you're going to don't necessarily go to the legal question of whether or not you have a right, but the practical question of how do you prove that right, which is... you know, a different slant on that question. And that is why people who are worried about that might do the thing where they send it to themselves and they get a postmark on it um, or, you know, try to try to freeze it into place some other way. Um, That said, if you don't do that, um, it, it a lot of the law comes down to testimony, right? And you testify that this is yours and that you've done it and you have other people testify that, yes, they knew that you were working on a novel. They knew that you typed it. It was around this period of time. Um, and then the judge just, just kind of weighs the, the facts there. What if, what about having it notarized? Would that help? Um, I, you know, if, if you're worry it's another person who can testify that yes they notarized it on this particular day it's another thing that's on the physical copy that indicates that it was in being and in your possession at that particular date so um it helps if if you're worried about establishing the timeline um but but again it doesn't give you extra rights or anything like that it would just help you i guess prove more easily if that's something that you're really concerned about Okay, thanks very much. Okay, Charles, thank you so much for your call. David is in Starkville. Good morning, State. David, what do you have for us? Uh, Mr. Professor, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, I have two questions. Assuming y'all are familiar with the Creative Commons scheme of copywriting, to my knowledge, it has yet to be litigated in court. I was wondering if you could speak to legitimacy of it as an actual means of copywriting anything, really. Okay. Um, I am familiar with it. And so this is, if I'm, if I'm understanding that we're talking about the same thing, the, the theory that when you post something on the internet, you maintain your copyright, but you say, I'm okay with it being used for these particular purposes. You don't have to come find my permission, do as you wish with it in these particular circumstances. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, ma'am. Although I, I believe there's, a, there's like tiers within creative copyrights where you could say, you know, not for commercial use or commercial yes. use without reference. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of different levels, but I'm I'm just curious. To my knowledge, it has yet to be litigated, and so not really proven, quote unquote. And I was wondering just how well it would stand up if if it came to a litigation. I think it would be fine. Um, I think that what it's it's striving to do is something I really applaud, which is to make copyright more accessible to creators out there who don't have big publishing companies or music labels navigating this field for them. I think. A lot of the creators on the internet today would be totally fine with people taking their stuff for non-commercial use, you know, discussing it in an internet meme, um, putting it on a list of awesome art that they love, but would be really unhappy with commercial uses of it, right? Like some big company taking it and using it on the front page of their newspaper or something like that. And so I think Creative Commons does great stuff in letting you, you know, say, I'm fine with non-commercial, don't come in touch with me for commercial. And there's really nothing that Creative Commons is doing that's radically different 
than anything that's been done before with copyright, except that it's happening on the internet. It's You always had the right as a copyright owner to pick and choose what you wanted to allow people to do with your copyrights. And you never were required to take money. You never were required to keep it you know, safe within your little house. You could always make something and make it available for the whole world to do whatever they wished with. That was always an option that was available to you. Um, you're right. I don't think that I've seen a litigation happen, but I don't, I don't think that there would be much of a question that the creative commons isn't a valid way to deal with this. I mean, I guess maybe there would be a notice problem that they might try to raise, but the thing is that if you can't get permission from the author, you're not supposed to do anything. So if you're not on notice that you're allowed to do it, you can't just pretend that you were on notice that it's okay. Um, and so I think that, I think that it's a good idea. Um, and I think that it's doing good things and I think it would be, I think it would hold up in court. Uh, and I've got a a follow-up question. I know that you can, you can use, if I understand correctly, you can use some copyright copywritten material without express permission. If it's a transformative work, like if if you're taking it to a completely different medium, if that is the case, are there any hard and fast rules about like what, what constitutes this transformative? Like, you know, if I, if I made a theme cupcake for a, a movie, and obviously that's extremely transformative, but, you know, is, are there any rules saying, you know, like it has to be a completely different medium or it has to have so much difference or something to that effect? And Professor, we have about 30 seconds left. Uh, so, David, thank you for your call. But go ahead, Professor. The answer is unfortunately no. Um, there are no bright line rules in that transformative work regime. Um you just kind of have to to draw your own conclusions based on what's been okay in previous times. You don't have to switch medium. Um, the Wind Done Gone was found to be a fair use of Gone with the Wind, and those are both books. So that's not necessarily what makes it transformative. Generally, it's got to be a different purpose um, that you're using it for educational purposes and not for commercial purposes or something like that. All right, Professor Lantang, thank you so much for being on today. You were a wonderful guest. We appreciate you being on again. Professor Gershon, thank you for being on as well. That's going to wrap us up here, folks. But if you didn't get to call, you can send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. If you have a podcast app on your phone, you can look up In Legal Terms MPB, and you should be able to find us. Or you can also go to mpbonline.org and find out how to download our podcast that way as well. Jonas asked was our board operator. Kevin Farrell was our call screener. Thanks for tuning in, but stay tuned. Southern Remedy, Relative Speaking with Dr. Susan Buttress is up next. This is Think Radio.